Father, we thank you so much for this day. We are reminded by the song, we are so blessed. We are unimaginably blessed. And I am not even talking, Lord, about the physical, material blessings you give us. Lord, we live in this country where, compared to the rest of the world, we are very, very much blessed. But what a blessing it is to know Christ. What a blessing it is, Father, to be saved from our sins by grace through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, who redeemed us with his precious blood. And Father, you give us all who believe the free gift of everlasting life. Father, as we go into your word now, we're going to be talking about the difference between those who do believe and who don't, the, the eternal destiny of those who do believe and who don't. And I pray, Father, that if there are any here who don't trust in you today, that you might convict them of their sins and compel them to come to you. And for those of us who do trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, this morning, may we have a renewed appreciation for what we have been saved from and how we ought to live now in light of your blessings, which we really cannot count. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, I ask you to join me back in the Gospel of Luke. <coughs> Luke 16. And we are going to get through this chapter today, God willing. And it is one of the most fascinating parables our Lord taught while He was on this earth. Now, before we get back into this, though, let's remember where we are because it really is necessary to to do a little review to get the fullness of what's going on here in this parable. And I've come to really appreciate that this week uh, because this was not written in a vacuum. I, the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus has a lot to do with what happened before the parable was uh, spoken. And in Luke 14, for instance, we have seen, and it seems like forever ago, that we were there, but we saw in Luke 14, and if you want to just boil it down, it will cost you everything to be Jesus' disciple. It will cost you everything. Salvation, eternal life, is the free gift of, all, of, of God for all who believe. Romans 6.23, thank God, praise God for that. But it's not cheap. It's free, but it's not cheap. It was not bought for us cheaply. It was bought with Jesus' precious blood. And it's not cheap for us either. We have to carry our own crosses, Jesus says, if we want to come after Him. Then in Luke 15, we saw three parables. And the scribes and the Pharisees were grumbling because Jesus was mingling with sinners. And we saw the juxtaposition there of... They're grumbling versus the joy in heaven when even one sinner repents. And just the contrast there, the religious establishment, the self-righteous rejection of God against the joy of God in saving sinners. They were the unrighteous stewards. In Luke 16, the first parable we saw in this chapter, the Pharisees and scribes were the unrighteous stewards. They were the ones who were mismanaging what God, their master, had entrusted to them. And they were the ones who were looking after themselves. 
we saw that in last or two weeks ago, verses 14 through 18, where Luke actually says, You're lovers of money. The Pharisees are lovers of money. And what you think is good now is detestable in the sight of God. To draw an analogy from the last verse we saw here, verse 18, the religious establishment of Israel was continuously and openly committing spiritual adultery. They thought that they were enjoying the benefits of union with God while really they were just playing the harlot to satisfy themselves. And that brings us to the rich man and Lazarus, which logically follows all of Jesus' talk of the cost of following him, the prodigal son, the wasted estate, the selfish and self-righteous older brother, then the parable of the unrighteous steward and Luke calling the Pharisees lovers of money. It makes sense then. We begin to see this parable we're about to read in a new light when we think about what's leading up to it. (coughs) So, Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to cross over from there to us, so that none, rather, none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, To him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. That's how powerful unbelief is. They won't even believe someone rising from the dead. This is one of those passages unique to Luke. It's not found in other Gospels. And it is a very powerful statement from our Lord about hell and heaven. You know, Jesus talked a lot more about hell than he did heaven. Do you realize that? We, we don't. We don't talk as much about hell, do we? we? We sing songs when we all get to heaven, sweet by and by. We, we have songs. We sing about heaven a lot more than we think or talk about hell. And I think that might be a reason. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's at least one reason why 
the culture keeps moving away from the church. Because our talk about hell, we don't talk about hell nearly as much as Jesus did. Fewer and fewer people are believing in hell these days. I saw a survey recently which said there are uh, an alarming number, and I couldn't recall it, so I couldn't give you the actual numbers. But it was an alarming number of, of people from my generation and the generation and maybe the one after it following me who do not believe that there is a literal hell. In recent years, books have been written by pseudo-Christian, which means not really Christian authors, who have since left the faith actually entirely, saying that love wins and that God is not going to punish people eternally in hell. And though I think that if I did a survey of all of us here today, the overwhelming response to that would be, of course there's a literal hell. And by the way, I praise God that that would be the consensus. We don't talk about it as much. In fact, many churches, many pastors have stopped talking about hell to appeal to that generation that doesn't really believe in it. But I don't think that's the answer. Because I think the gospel loses all sense of urgency when we stop talking about what happens if you don't believe in it. And we need to be talking more about eternal punishment and not less. After all, that's what Jesus did. And so how does he address it here? Well, the first thing I want you to see in this passage, this parable, is a great reversal. There's a great reversal that happens here. Now, there was a rich man, Jesus says. And right away, because of these previous passages in Luke, <coughs> we can see that Jesus is continuing a theme and building upon it. He continues to make a distinction between those who are rich in this world and pursuing riches in this world and those who will be rich in eternity. That This rich man habitually dressed in purple and fine linen and what that means is that if clothes make the man, this was a made man. He was dressed in the finest cloth available in ancient Israel. The, the purple refers to a purple dye that was very costly, very prestigious, very expensive. And, and he would wear this. And, and maybe somebody had an outfit like this for a special occasion. But what do we see here that he habitually dressed this way, joyously living in splendor, Every day. So Jesus is going out of his way in the first sentence of this parable to show us exactly what this rich man was about. And he was about being a rich man. On the other hand, verse 20, we're introduced to a poor man. There's a rich man and now there's a poor man. And he's given the name of Lazarus. And before we get any further, let me just say he's not talking about the real Lazarus who's the, the brother of Mary and Martha the one who's going to be raised from the dead in, in John 11. This man is given a name, Lazarus. It is significant that he's given that name, though, because this is the only person in any of Jesus' parables given a name. The name Lazarus is a Greek form of the very common Hebrew name Eleazar, which means the God who helps. And, and, and as we unfold this, we see it's a very appropriate, a very fitting name for this poor man. Notice what else is said about him. First, that he was laid at the gate. The, the word lay, laid, is, is a word that actually means to throw or to cast out. So he did not get there himself. He was so afflicted that he could not get to the rich man's gate himself. Someone 
basically dumped him there. He was cast down there, thrown down there. He was so afflicted, he was practically crippled, maybe even paralyzed, so that someone just dumped him at the rich man's gate. He couldn't feed himself. He's desperate for the crumbs from the rich man's table, and he could not move to the point that these awful sores with with pus are just oozing from him, and dogs are coming and licking him, going after his oozing flesh. And by the way, the dogs were not the domesticated pets we have today because there were not domesticated dogs in ancient Israel. These were wild animals. In fact, they were these dogs, they're almost always spoken of negatively in Scripture. The Jews called Gentiles dogs. Paul will say, beware the dogs, beware the circumcision. In Philippians 3, he means it in a bad way. So this was a, as bad of a situation as you could possibly get for the poor man in this world. He could not have been more pathetic. But there he was, a polar opposite of the rich man, right there at the gate of the rich man, to be seen any time he went in or out. And then, verse 22, he died. And not just him, but the rich man also died. And just as they were polar opposites in life, one rich, one poor, one living in splendor, one in destitution, what we see is that after their deaths, they are also polar opposites. And they went through the greatest of reversals. When the poor man died, Jesus says, that he was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, let me just talk about that for a minute because the Bible nowhere else says anything about angels carrying a believer into Abraham's bosom. So we shouldn't infer that that's normal, uh, what we read here. This is a parable. Let's remember that it's a parable. And everything Jesus says in a parable is designed to get across his main point. And here the point in Jesus saying this about the angels is backed up by where they take Lazarus and that's to Abraham's bosom which is another name for what we call heaven Um, Jesus calls it paradise when he's speaking to the thief on the cross it's not the new heaven and the new earth that one day all believers will enjoy for eternity once the events of revelation have concluded but it is a glorious place where all believers for all time are now after they have died. It is the place where Jesus Himself is right now at the right hand of the Father. He told the thief, if you recall, John, that today you will be with me in paradise. That's where Jesus is now. It's heaven as it exists today. So why is it called Abraham's bosom? Because this is the only place we see that. For a couple of reasons. One, unless stated otherwise, everyone in Jesus' parables is assumed to be a Jew. Because that's who his audience was. Now we do see in some of his parables, Gentiles or a Samaritan. But unless said otherwise, they're Jews. And who did the Jews trace their heritage to? Well, those of you who have been with us on Wednesday nights going through Genesis, we know this, don't we? To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to Abraham, right? To the point that it was widely 
but erroneously thought by many in Jesus' day that that alone is what made them right before God. That by default they were right before God because they were physical descendants of Abraham. So it's called Abraham's bosom because it's where Abraham was and it's meant to convey heaven and meant to say that despite his earthly poverty, this man who went there died in faith. The rich man, though, he just died. He died, and and then he was buried. You know, it's not even said that Lazarus, the poor man, was buried. As if his body was just cast somewhere, the way it had originally been cast at the rich man's gate while he was still alive. The rich man, though, received a proper burial. And it may have been a funeral with all the, the accompaniment that you would expect for someone rich, you know. Maybe the best linens to be wrapped in, the best memorial stone or whatever. But that was the end of the good news for him. That was the end of the good news for the rich man forever. Because in verse 23, in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and read constant torment there. And what is Hades? Well, just as paradise is heaven as it is today, Hades is hell as it is today. The full and final hell is the lake of fire. One day death in Hades, Revelation says, will be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20. It's the eternal torment. The lake of fire is the place where Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet and everyone who does not believe for all time will ultimately find themselves forever in the lake of fire. The penalty of eternal destruction. But for now it's this place called Hades. And the rich man died and was there immediately. Note that. He lifted up his eyes and he was in Hades. There was no purgatory. There was no soul sleep. There are some who teach that your soul goes to sleep until the the resurrection takes place. No, he was there immediately straight to Hades, straight to, Jesus says, in torment. Torment. Now, this is a parable, so we also see something about Hades that we shouldn't extrapolate to, to, to normalcy. For the purposes of his story, Jesus said the rich man in torment saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. But let me tell you, there's no biblical evidence otherwise to suggest that those in hell will see heaven or vice versa. I want you to know that. Remember, Jesus is telling a story here. In fact, I'm quite certain about this because those who are in heaven, we read in Scripture, will have every tear wiped away. And and heaven is going to be a place of eternal bliss, a place of zero sadness, a place where there is zero absence of joy. Our joy will be made full and final and continual and eternal in heaven. So we will not be looking into hell. And we will not be seeing what's going on there because I can't imagine being anything less than crushed as sinners are judged for eternity. I don't think we'll see that at all. I'm quite certain about that. So this is a story 
to illustrate truth, but heaven and hell will not see each other. And we begin to see more of this truth in verse 34. We've seen a great reversal. Now we see a great chasm. Verse 24, actually. 24. And what does verse 24 say? And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Father Abraham. It shows the rich man was a Jew as well. And, and that's important because if we look back to verses 14 to 18, it's the Pharisees, it's the self-righteous Jews there who were lovers of money, who, who thought that being rich was inherently a good thing, a sure sign of God's blessing. Beloved, being rich, being financially and material ble- materially blessed is not a sure sign of God's blessing. You know, Jesus says it's easier for the eye of a needle. You know, you, how's it go? Camel. Yes. It's, e- yeah. Woo. it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. It's harder for that, something impossible to happen. Because if you're trusting in your riches, if you're trusting in, in, in money, you're not trusting in God. You cannot serve God and wealth. We've just seen in verse 13, right? But they thought that it was a sign of blessing. But it was also to those same people Jesus had said, that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Now, let me clarify something. It's not sinful to have a lot of money. It's sinful to want a lot of money. It's sinful to lust after a lot of money and to think that that's going to make you happy. There's a reason so many lottery winners end up dying early. There's a reason so many lottery winners end up losing that money rather quickly. It didn't make sense that this rich Jew was in Hades. It wouldn't have made sense to the Pharisees. And it was a detail meant to shake the senses of the Pharisees. Beloved, this morning, if you think you're rich in this world, watch out. So what did he say? What did this, this rich man say? Have mercy on me, which is something he probably had never said while he was living. He never had earthly needs. He probably thought he'd never really done anything wrong. After all, he habitually lived in splendor. He was joyous every day. God had blessed him, right? But in Hades, he immediately knew all of that was for nothing. He was a vile, wretched sinner, and he needed God's mercy. And he had rejected God in life and now was pleading for mercy from Abraham in death. But just to show how much his heart really had not changed, because you can know the truth and your heart still not change, look at how he still viewed Lazarus. He's a hired hand, like a servant. Have him come and help me. Have him come and serve me, serve my needs, just as he would have if he could have in life. The rich man's antipathy For Lazarus, even while in Hades, is dripping from Jesus' words here. He 
continues to look down on Lazarus even while he's in hell. Because hearts do not change in hell. Hearts don't change in hell. Do you realize that, beloved? That people will not repent in hell. They will know that they were sinners. They will know that they are guilty. They will know that they are vile and rebellious toward God. But their hearts will not change. You can only repent in this life. In Hades, people will be punished eternally for their sins. One of the questions I've gotten from time to time is, why will God punish for eternity sins that are committed in a what is relatively a short amount of time, rather it be 40 years or 80 years or 100 years of earthly life? Why will God punish us or punish the unbelievers for eternity because of that? And part of the reason is, one, He's an infinite God. And He's an eternal God. And any sin against an infinite, eternal God does merit infinite, eternal punishment. But two, you will not stop sinning while in hell. They will, people who are in hell will still hate God. They will still be sinning in their hearts for eternity. They will not suddenly embrace Jesus Christ They will know that He is Lord, but they won't love Him as Lord. They'll know He is God. They'll know He is the one and only Savior, but they won't love Him. In fact, they'll hate Him even more. And so they'll be punished forevermore. And there will be fire of some sort, fire in Hades even today, a lake of fire in the future, but even fire in in Hades today. And it will be worse, I believe. The lake of fire will be worse A worse fire than even what hell is today. I say that because the new heaven and the new earth will be greater than heaven even is today. You have to think that lake of fire is even worse than Hades. Even so, the rich man was in agony in this flame and he knew he'd never get out. He was just looking for a little bit of relief. But there will be no relief. If you end up in that place... There will be no end to your agony. Look at verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. Abraham calls him child, reinforcing the Jewish ties. It's also a statement to the Pharisees listening. Bloodlines do not save. Being a Jew doesn't save. Being a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't save. In fact, being a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't even make you a son of Abraham in the biblical sense. Paul in Galatians 3 verse 7 says, Be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. If you are of the faith of Abraham, you are a son of Abraham. I am a son of Abraham this morning, though I have, to my knowledge, no Jewish blood in me. Unless you count Noah. I am a descendant of Noah, like you. But why was the rich man in Hades? Because he didn't have faith. He didn't trust in the Lord. He didn't have the faith of Abraham. He may have professed Abraham's God, Yahweh, with his lips... But his heart was far from him and there would be no end to his agony. And Abraham tells him, 
In life you received good things and Lazarus bad, but now he is being comforted here and you are not because he hadn't believed. He loved money rather than God. He loved something else rather than God. He loved himself in place of God. So verse 26, Abraham told him, between you and us, us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. It's fixed. It's done. It's, it's set in stone. It's permanent. It cannot change. It will not change. It cannot and will not be undone. There is a great chasm fixed by God Himself so that those who wish to come over here to you will not be able and none may cross over from there to us. No one gets out of torment to find blessing just as no one who is in blessing will find torment. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, Romans 11 tells us. We do not lose our salvation. We do not lose the blessings of our salvation. And likewise, once you die in unbelief, you will never know any part of salvation. You will never know any end to agony. So the rich man and the poor man were experiencing the permanence of eternity. A great reversal and now a great chasm fixed between them. And finally we see a great warning. There is a great warning. Because once the rich man realizes every opportunity for even the slightest bit of relief is gone. There will be no end to his agony, no end to his torment and suffering. Verse 27, he begs Abraham, calls him father, and begs him to send Lazarus to his father's house. Look at verse 28. Why does he do this? Verse 28, For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He, he wanted a miracle. Someone from heaven to come to earth. That's supernatural. That's a miracle. And his brothers would have known who Lazarus was because he was there laid at his gate. They would have known who Lazarus was. They would have known he had died. And so the rich man wants Lazarus sent to them. One dead sent back. To warn them lest they end up in torment like him. By the way, notice he still speaks of Lazarus like a servant to do something for him. His heart has not changed, lest anyone think he has found compassion in hell. But what the rich man wanted also implies that if someone would have warned him while he was still alive, he would have changed his own mind about God. So if Abraham sends Lazarus, he thinks his brothers will be able to avoid Hades. But that's not how it works. That's not how it was. You see, beloved, the rich man, and by the way, you and me today, he didn't need a miracle to believe while he was on the earth. He had all the information he needed while he was on the earth. He just rejected it. He rejected God just like the Pharisees were doing because miracles do not help people believe. That might sound strange, but miracles do not help people believe. If they did, all of Israel would have believed in Jesus. Because while Jesus was walking 
through the towns and villages of Judea and up in Galilee before that, he was practically eradicating disease from Israel during his life. John 21, 25. You know, the things we get in the Gospels are just a sampling of all the things Jesus did. John 21, 25 says, There are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Jesus performed enough miracles for everyone in Israel to believe. And even Jesus' hardest critics, it should be noted, you know the one thing that they never criticized Jesus about? They never ever said, you didn't really heal that leper. They never said, you did not really raise Lazarus from the dead. They didn't say, you didn't really heal Peter's mother-in-law of her, her deathly fever. They never questioned the validity of his miracles, and yet they still refused to trust in him because miracles don't help you believe. Remember the transfiguration? Matthew 17. Jesus is on a, a hill. Peter and James and John are with him, and suddenly he is changed into to kind of a preview of, of his glory as he is in it now. And... What did God audibly say so that Peter, James, and John could hear it? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. So here was Jesus miraculously transformed before their eyes that they could see. And what does God say? Listen to him. Peter will bring this back up in 2 Peter 1. He'll say, I was on the mountain, but we have the prophetic word made more sure. He's talking about the scripture when he says that. God had said to him, listen to my son. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Abraham would not be sending Lazarus. So what did he say? They have... Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Those brothers had what the rich man had access to, the written word of God, the revealed will of God in the scriptures, and yet the rich man had rejected them. His brothers were rejecting them, but they had them. The rich man then did what so many do. He protested. And demanded more from God. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. The rich man, like so many today, would not believe what God had revealed. So in this parable, Abraham knew it wasn't another miracle they needed. Verse 31. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded. Even if someone rises from the dead. And of course, Jesus is telling this parable and he knows what is about to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. He knows that most of Israel will continue to reject him even after he is raised from the dead. In fact, what will these people do once he's raised from the dead? They will concoct a, a conspiracy to say that the, the disciples stole his body. They will not believe even if they see one raised from the dead. 
But the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament, let them hear them. The Old, the Old Testament anticipated Jesus. John would later write that Jesus came to his own, the, his own being the Jews. He came to his own and they received him not. Like the rich man was asking for, one came from heaven to earth and they received him not. The rich man, indicative of the Pharisees, indicative of the, the religious establishment of Israel, of anyone not receiving Jesus, did not accept the one the Scriptures pointed to. And if they would not believe the Word of God, they would not go to paradise, but Hades instead. They would find themselves not in heaven, but in hell. And today it's the same for us. God has given us not just Moses and the prophets, but four Gospels and Acts and the letters and Revelation. We have the prophetic Word made more sure. We have the Word of God that we can trust even more than our own eyes. The Master has entrusted to us His riches. Like the rich man, God has given us good things. But what are we doing with them? Beloved, if you are living by some other standard than the Word of God, you will always wind up disappointed. If you are living for a treasure that is anything other than Christ, it will all fade away. The rich man had Moses and the prophets. God told him, God told the disciples, listen to him. And what had he, Jesus said, repent, believe, follow me. Repent based on what God's Word tells us about who He is, what He is like, what He demands of us, what He says about us, how very far short we fall. Believe based on what God's Word tells us about what He has done about our sin problem, how He has sent His Son to bear the full fury of God's wrath for all sin, for all time, for all who will ever entrust themselves to Him. Jesus died on the cross. He shed His precious blood and He was raised on the third day so that all who believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And follow Him, follow me, based on what God's Word teaches us about how we should live under His Lordship. Not doing our own thing. Remember, we don't have a fourth chair carved into the Trinity. We have to live by His Word. We have to listen to Him, unlike the rich man in life. We have to obey Him, even when it costs us everything. And if we do that, we'll understand the urgency of the message God has given us to proclaim. Do you realize today, beloved, that the vast majority of the people we know in this world are probably heading to this place of torment? But with what urgency are we carrying Moses and the prophets and the gospels to them? A lot of people are going to Hades. In fact, hell will be filled with religious people who assumed their future without trusting in the one who holds it in his hand. A great chasm is fixed between heaven and hell. It is as deep and wide as how you treat God's word. And scripture is clear. Believe 
what God has said and you will be saved. Even Jesus rising from the dead, the greatest miracle of them all, is just a story if you don't believe the Word. Otherwise, there's torment. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this great warning to us. Hopefully not just a warning, but but something to compel us to think about those who don't believe. Father, first I, I do pray if there's anyone here who is trusting in their religion, trusting maybe in the things they do, their own works righteousness. If there's anyone here who's trusting in anything other than your Son and Him only, then I pray you'll show them the gore of hell and compel them to come to your only way of escape, which is your Son. And for we who believe, Father, may you give us a renewed appreciation for the gospel and what you have saved us from, what you have saved us to, and the gravity and the urgency of the message you have given us to proclaim. Father, forgive us for not thinking urgently about the gospel. But help us to take it to those who think they are rich in this world, but will really find the poverty of torment in hell. Help them to show us the treasure that is your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.